Welcome to Behind the Curtain, L.A. Opera's podcast series in which we look deeply at the creative process and explore opera's enduring themes and power to move us. Hello, Thaddeus. Good morning. How are you? Good morning. We're almost to the end. We are. The end is nigh. The light the light at the end of the tunnel. Uh, so we're here to talk about uh, your brand new production of uh, Clemenza de Tito for the Los Angeles Opera. I've had the privilege of observing you and your career for uh, a number of years, and it's a pleasure to have you back here after um, your triumphant productions of most recently of Nabucco. If I had to pigeonhole you into a category, it would basically be that you're kind of a classicist with a sharp edge. And so I thought to talk about, to give people a sense of what this production is like in the audience, I thought about there's incredible power for me in constraint. And so I think that we gave you one of the most difficult assignments in the canon because, uh, and we could talk about what an opera seria is, but an opera seria in a way is a little bit like a straitjacket for a stage director. So if you wouldn't mind starting there and we can start somewhere else, I thought we could start at how you turn the kind of limitations of the form into assets as a storyteller. Because I think that um, as you say, we're nearing the end. I think that what you've come up with is one of the most ravishingly beautiful and moving productions we've ever seen on our stage. And that's, you know, we're, we haven't even started with the, with the orchestra yet, but it's just, it's, a, it's an arresting production, uh, either in spite of, or because of those constraints. So that's, I think, where I'd start. I think every opera has constraints to it. And when I look at a piece and start putting together a creative team for it, the first part of the conversation isn't about what isn't possible or what's difficult about the piece, but what's really exciting and what the source material to mine is already there. Because otherwise you start thinking, oh, we have to bring things to the piece. We have to sort of fix the piece. We have to find solutions. But actually, if you look at just, say, traditional representations of it that you've seen before that might have missed some of what's in the piece, and then you begin to have that opinion that it's boring or that it's constraining or that it has these sort of structural issues. But for example, with this piece, the finale of Act One is a huge arson fire attack on all of Rome and it's burning. And there's this beautifully constructed um, musical set piece where everyone is reacting to this massive event. And quite strangely, it doesn't sound like panicked or loud. It's actually quite hushed and quiet. And sort of on first reading, you think, oh, well, that's like some sort of weird operatic convention or, um, you know, maybe he sort of wasn't attuned to the bigness of the 19th century of Wagner or Verdi and how he would have treated it. You you almost expect what's happening in the libretto to need to sound like the opening chords of Otello or something. But it doesn't. It's quite the opposite. But looking at that as a designer and, and with a, a team of lighting designers, video designers, costume designers, you're looking at, wow, like that's an amazing opportunity to do something. And then that ended up becoming the the whole sort of turning point for the piece. How do we make this big fiery event important and be the visual sort of turning point between a beautifully constructed Rome and a Rome that has been destroyed? And then sort of for our generation of people, we're all based in New York. We were all in September 11th in New York City. And when you actually start thinking about a, a tragic event where your city is on fire and you don't know what's happening and you feel like the not only the architecture and the infrastructure are under attack, but the politics and, and the way of life, it actually wasn't panicked. It was actually quite quiet. And when you go back and look at all of the um, reference from that day, people with their cell phones 
phone cameras and things standing on their balconies, you know, watching the buildings fall. It's really not pandemonium. It's this sort of quiet, hushed, very personal reaction, you know, sort of gasps or sighing or small sobs or people just uh, not making any sound at all, watching these sort of events unfold in what feels almost like slow motion. So in a weird sort of way, what you think is a constraint of a style when you really go into it and you respect the material that's there, you think, wow, these people really understood the actual human condition and they weren't doing a stereotype of what we think a reaction is, but they actually have their finger on the pulse. And once you realize that, you start trusting the piece so many ways. I'll continue in that idea that there's um, like there's a be a trio where it basically is an A section followed by an A section. And you think, oh no, what do we do with that? Um, there's no development. And then you start finding, well, we do repeat things all the time. We repeat, you know, we, we memes, you know, we love to see something and see it again and put it on a bumper sticker. And when you're having a, an emotion, you're not necessarily moving forward in a logical fashion. You may repeat that thing over and over and over in your head. And it ends up feeling really, really human just by making these really small articulations in the the way that it's sung, the colors, the, um, the phrasing, the dynamics, and then the actions that reinforce what they're doing musically. All of a sudden you realize, oh, like she's only repeated it twice because in real life you would probably go over and over and over until you were able to you know, fall asleep that night. Yeah, I mean, I think there are, there are two things there that I think tease out your general philosophy as a director and a designer here, which is that I think that opera productions can go wrong when someone tries to impose something on the piece which is not native to the piece. You know, they sort of they sort of fear stillness or they, they fear quietude. And the other piece is that you are directing from a position of deep musicological knowledge as opposed to kind of directing just just from text. And I think that when I see opera productions going wrong, it's because something's been superimposed upon a piece which is not native to it. I mean, would you say that that's, that is kind of your philosophy, is that you, you, ad, you adapt your aesthetic and directorial approach specifically to the material in which you're trying to convey? Definitely, because we talk about sort of colors and composition on stage, but that's exactly what the orchestra and the musical lines are offering. So I think that it's it would just make my life and my job much more difficult if I didn't engage with the music. As a matter of fact, I think that, you know, some people think that, oh, it's just easier if you bring a directorial concept and just sort of overlay it and don't sort of waste your time, you know, sort of dealing with all of these undercurrents. But actually, all the clues are are there. And I think it's also really important to remember it's a it's quite a modern concept to think of operas being written by composers. And when you go back, I've talked about this with Nabucco, the original poster, it says that it is an opera by the librettist set to music by by Verdi. And Mozart received this libretto that was originally based on Metastasio and then he hired Mazzolato to to, to rewrite it a little bit, but it, the opera has been set, the same libretto has been set like 42 times at least, if not more times. So it was a play that exists with an arc and it sort of has ancient, tragic sort of qualities to it. And it was an entire piece that people really believed in the language of. And then I think that Mozart was able to add to that and as being a genius that he is, is able to find even more layers in it as a person with dramatic interest in the material. So it's not a musical form that is there to provide a life support system to the 
to, to the libretto. So I think in, in that respect, just thinking about the two coexisting completely and that you cannot separate the, the two of them from each other is a good place to start a production. Because then even not only thinking about the, the textures and what's happening with the orchestration, but also just the balance with the orchestra and thinking about how the set sort of works into... Um, an acoustical space, you know, knowing the Dorothy Chandler, and it's a rather large theater, much larger than the the piece would have originally been played in. And, you know, thinking about the materials and the, the, the composition on stage, not only from a visual standpoint, but knowing how it's going to be used. For example, there's a scene at the very beginning that's quite intimate, and it's in a bed. And you think, well, a bed is normally like very soft and has soft furnishings, and that could sort of suck the sound in. But obviously, you want to hear the, the very first whisperings. So luckily, in ancient Roman times, there's all of these paintings where there's these sort of hard wall screens behind their beds. And you think, okay, that's a beautiful visual element that I've seen in lots of reference. But it also serves a very key musical function in not only us hearing what's happening on stage, but the singers being able to hear the fine nuances of what's happening in the orchestra so that everything is working together. So I'd like the reference there to um, the research that you've done. Uh, maybe talk a little bit about that research as it applies to your practice generally, but then more specifically to this production of Clemenza. Well, I think any opera, you know, in the sort of classical canon is sort of rooted in some sort of aesthetic movement, uh, visually with architecture, intellectually with writing and everything. So it's always helpful to go back and sort of look at the milieu in which it was written. And even if that's not where you finish, it's it can definitely be a, um, a starting point for sort of discovering things. But I would always look for contemporary to, to the original composition uh, interpretations to start with. And I just happened to like to spend a lot of time in museums with big history paintings, you know, going probably starting with like Rubens and Poussin, sort of late 18th, uh, late 17th century, all the way up through sort of the beginning of the, the 20th century, how people depicted the past. And I think there's one thing that I've always found really interesting ever since I started out as a young director, and especially in America, where it's generally more conservative in the, the let's say the style of aesthetic compared to the European style um, of Regi Theater, blah, blah, blah. So I often got criticism when I was younger um, about why do you make your, your, your productions so violent and gory and, you know, sexualized or, you know, if there's nudity involved in them. And I was always sort of scratching my head. I thought, well, I'm not bringing any of that to this. Like, have you been to the Metropolitan Museum? Have you been to the Louvre? Have you been to the Prado? Everything is skin and blood and, you know, the the rape of the Sabines, the murder of the innocents. And you see all of these things in these paintings and you realize that they're focusing their political and aesthetic concerns through through their work at the time. So I like to bring that out and remember that we're sort of connected to our past. So we're not sort of living a, you know, a, a more violent time or a, a more sexualized time now than we did in the past. But finding this sort of dialogue with the paintings, I find really interesting. And you do that because that's that's your that's your personal aesthetic interest or because that actually fuels and inspires your work. It's I mean it's it's worth pointing out that uh, for this production and also for Nabucco, although this was not true of Dewey Foscari, you are both the stage uh, designer and the stage director. So I think when I look at these paintings, I just think that they energize me and I feel like there's a kind of um, Dialogue with the past? A dialogue with the past that makes our past not seem so 
distant. So I don't think that you have to modernize the aesthetic of a production in order to make the ideas modern. I mean, opera is a contemporary art form. There's no way to present any opera without it being contemporary because it's the people in the orchestra pit, it's the singers today, it's the audience today. It doesn't exist until it's all happening. So it's not an historic art form. In, in that respect. And all we get from the, the source material is lines and notes and words, and then we have to figure it all out in a contemporary way. But we can use lots of tools from the past. So, so what was your um, jumping off point in terms of determining what the aesthetic approach? I mean, did you start, presumably you can't divide your own brain, but did you start the process from your uh, the set designer half of your brain or the, or the stage director part of your brain? Are they so intertwined that they they can't be cleaved? I think that they are very much intertwined, but I think that I really did start the whole thing with this idea that this burning, that we have to have a before and an after, that we have a society that we believe in, something that we've structured, something that's beautiful, that we've worked towards, that we've engineered, and that we're comfortable with. And then it's ruptured and, and, and it's brought to an end. And then how do we deal with that? And it was I think it's worth saying, sorry, parenthetically, that that in fact, uh, when we started the conversation about this, of course, you know, opera only lives, as you say, in in um, in live performance. But you're you're of course one of the things you're contending with is the production history of the piece in the past. And I know that the the lack of a realistic depiction of that tumult was part of your uh, process. That that you were surprised, I think, that. So many productions just elided the idea of what that destruction actually meant. And I think you were baffled by the fact that it so rarely gets actually uh, shown on stage. Well, also, we're contributing then to what the tradition of the piece is, because the work that you do here in Los Angeles is important. And then it becomes a visual reference that goes into what people think the opera is. And so I think from a larger point of view, it's nice to contribute in a way that's meaningful and not just echoing what's been done in the past. I mean, it, it it's also goes through different periods of taste. I mean, looking at sort of neoclassical things, whether you look at it through the prism of neoclassical visions of Rome, where it's all sort of gleaming white marble, but sort of in ruins, but we sort of respect that as this, you know, thing that we have to... Um, Noble rot. The noble rot. And I mean, even there's a, there's a huge history to all throughout the Renaissance of people building ruins in their gardens and things and appreciating Follies, that. Yeah. But um, for example, I work in Russia a lot now. And um, generally, the aesthetic there on stage, they don't like to see noble rot and ruin because there is a lot of rot and ruin in the sort of larger landscape there. And the theater ends up tending towards an aesthetic more like a swan lake where everything is sort of symmetrical and diaphanous and these things that you don't see in in real life. And that theater serves a different way of sort of escaping uh, a reality. And um, but I think in America, oftentimes we're, we sort of have a, a complacency and that there is a, a middle class life that's quite comfortable for a lot of people that attend the opera. And then so sort of seeing the noble rot or seeing the, the blood and guts or sort of breaking it apart ends up being uh, a contrast. So I take all of that into account as well, because those of us that sort of work around the world all the time are constantly sort of trying to interact and engage with audiences in the same way, but you have to go about it in a very different way. An audience in Vienna reacts to something very differently than an audience in Copenhagen. Yeah, I mean, I think that's a, a beautiful point. I mean, we, we try to make sure that we're only presenting work, which is uh, vaguely defined as being idiomatic to Los Angeles. But I mean, I think the fact that you're taking into account 
your experience of our audience up to this point is is uh, is an important point. Another thing that LA Opera has that's a huge asset that a lot of companies don't have, especially anymore, is a costume shop that is integral to the company and has a massive amount of talent and human resources to put things together. And I wouldn't even attempt to do a production that has this amount of beauty and craftsmanship and artistry in the construction of the costumes and are able to realize the level of detail that Matty Ulrich has designed in the costumes if you didn't have your own dedicated staff um, to make these things. And that's something that is... Uh, going away in a lot of opera companies, that everything is outsourced and that you, you don't have that sort of institutional affection for the work that's going on stage to achieve something like this that doesn't end up looking um, sort of pantomime or sort of willfully old-fashioned, but to strike this line between couture and fashion and aesthetic beauty. Yeah, I appreciate you saying that because it's a point of institutional pride. It's an extraordinary group of artisans in that in that shop and the work that they produce. I mean, it's, it's rare, you know, we just come out of a piano dress rehearsal. It's rare to have come out of six hours of rehearsal with so few notes. And I think as a testament to the incredible process they had with, with Maddie along the way. Uh, so talk about some of the, some of the uh, aesthetic references that, that you drew from in, in putting the production together, some of the paintings, some of the painters that inspired the, the look it's interesting. In the beginning, you cast a, a fairly wide net for what you're looking for. And as you get closer and closer and closer, it ends up sort of refining down in a certain way. I mean, the, the history paintings that are in the Louvre, um, there's so many names there that are not household names anymore because they were more academic or sort of salon painters that weren't, you know, haven't sort of entered the top 10 that you might know in an international way. But then also looking at their, their painters from the, the Brera in, in Italy, because sort of having this um, going beyond just the Italian look, we actually found helpful. Rubens was also painting really beautiful thing on Greek and uh, Roman subjects. But when you start looking at them, he starts tipping things more towards a Northern European Renaissance aesthetic. And that doesn't end up being right, even though sort of the feeling of the paintings can be um, there. I, th I would say probably the most influential painters were Jericho, uh, Jerome, and there's this Polish painter, um, Siemenriki, who's become really uh, important to us for the, the final vision, who painted a, a painting called The Torches of Nero um, that looks quite... Uh, fantastical with everybody having a good time. It almost looks like some sort of bacchanal or weekend party. But then if you sort of look to the right-hand side of the painting, you see about 10 large crosses that are burning Christian martyrs at them. And so you have this real sense of like Grand Guignol, Macabre kind of confluence of festivities and, um, you know, killing people. And we also have to forget that Sesto in the opera, who is the character who instigates the assassination against his best friend Tito, who's the emperor, is sentenced to death. And it's a very real thing. It's not, oh, you were sentenced to death and now we take the handcuffs off of you and you're fine. Um, we really need to know that it's he's going to be burned at the stake or sent to the lions. And there's a lot of paintings from, I would say, the 1830s up to the 1860s. Um, the other one that I'm thinking of with the um, uh, Delacroix uh, is also sort of really lush and dark and has these sort of rich golds and blacks in them. When you look at Rome, 
I, I spent a lot of time in Rome. I had a Fulbright scholarship in Italy in 2000 and studied at La Scala. And but part of the the remit of the Fulbright scholarship was to travel a lot around Italy and you know, sort of soak up all the aesthetic things that are there. Tough would, gig. Tough gig. Yeah, it was great. And uh, I ended up um, sort of really helping my career in the beginning because I worked in Italy at La Scala and San Carlo and the Fenice because I speak Italian really well, not only Italian, but theatrical Italian. And so it was sort of my my leg into um, to, to all of these places, which then allowed me more contact with all of this sort of visual material that we're talking about. But um, spending a lot of time in Rome, it's I'm always sort of looking for the story under the story, the secret hidden thing, you know, just like you look for a speakeasy bar when you go to a new city because it's the thing you need to find. In Rome, it's e- it's very easy to find broken white columns sort of standing everywhere in the forum. But the more you go in and look at things when you go to Pompeii or even Herculaneum, which is even much better maintained, uh, or Ostia Antica, which is uh, the settlement that's out towards uh, the airport on the on the ancient port, um, you really see the interiors of these places that were using Pompeian red colors that we call today, these sort of really dark oxblood reds and a lot of black marble. And then you start realizing that a lot of the history of these things architecturally are brought, um, have to do with the empire aspect of Northern Africa and all of the different exotic marbles that they were bringing in and that they were things they were bringing in from the, the Middle East, um, Iran and Iraq and Persia, all through Morocco, Algeria, and um, Egypt, that they were taking all these most beautiful things that Europe had never seen before, these, these richly colored marbles. I wanted to incorporate that into the look of the set, and but not just in a strictly historical way, because then it starts to be some sort of documentary. But all of these materials throughout, as the empire, as it were, has changed in in Rome, that the the church obviously took over, and then they reincorporated all of these materials. So, I mean, almost every church in Rome has Roman columns in it that are made out of marble that could have been brought from an obelisk that was in Egypt, and so it ends up becoming essentially three thousand years of history. Because because the stone itself hasn't changed. And there's something about it that's almost like talismanic for me of being able to touch something that could have been the pharaohs into the emperors of Rome, into the popes through fascism being remade with Mussolini. And then yet it's still able for people like us to go and touch and and somehow connect to. So sort of condensing all of these things down into the opera. I was just speaking to my team last night about some of the visual images that um, we were talking about from the, the piano dress rehearsal that I don't even know, I couldn't pinpoint the day that I thought, oh, this is the painting that we're going to use, or this is the style we're going to use. But through my model making period. It's just things go in the model, things come out of the model, and it takes, you know, several month and a half to work on this. And one day, certain pieces just don't get put back in the model and certain pieces seem to stay. And there's something about it that ends up being not an intellectual decision, but ultimately is a emotional, an emotional primal, one. primal response. So so once you've, once you've built that world in your mind, you then have to convey and populate that world with the cast. So it, at some point, the stage director brain has to uh, be the dominant one. Uh, talk about the process of bringing the cast along into that world um, over the course of the, the rehearsal period. Well, I show them a lot of these paintings because I can't assume that everybody has the the same knowledge or experience with them. And also in opera, you're always dealing with international cast, people coming from, from different places. So throughout their high school and university, maybe they've looked at different paintings, read different books. So there's... Um, a component to it about a sort of bringing together a unified visual language that we're going to use. And um, 
oftentimes with the staging, I work quite quickly and not very detailed in the beginning because I want to incorporate the singer's opinions about what we're doing. And if we go through it sort of bar by bar in a, in a slow fashion, they don't quite know which direction it's headed and their opinion can't mesh with what we're doing. So it often shocks them quite fast that we'll get through an hour's worth of music, you know, a whole act within three or four days. And I'm almost, it's almost like programming a GPS of the points that we're going to hit throughout the evening. And it starts to give them a structure onto which they can hang more intellectual ideas or emotional ideas once they kind of know this is the space that they they can occupy. And so I get through that very quickly. So, and then I can go back and I can show them a specific painting. And, you know, it's no longer like 20 things. I say, well, let's look at this because this, I think, has a lot of information, a lot of details. And I ask them, what do you see in this painting? And then usually they talk about the subject matter. And then I say, well, look in the shadows on the left. What's happening over there? Oh, well, there's three senators. Oh, well, what's in his hand? Oh, he has a dagger in his hand. Oh, why can't we see that? And then all of a sudden, you know, the character playing Publio, for example, who's sort of a conspirator against the thing. He goes, oh, my, I'm in that painting. And then you can start to extrapolate a story out of that. It's always amazing to me in the process to watch that um, when we move from just stage piano rehearsals to actually people being in costume wigs and makeup, how that all starts to, uh, there's something about a singer looking at themselves in a mirror in which that vision becomes complete, mm -hmm. in which case it's kind of a, it's a, we take off like a rocket towards opening night because all of a sudden all these disparate uh, pieces that you've, uh, all these seeds that you've planted for people suddenly uh, blossom all at all at once. It's a very gratifying experience. I think that opera direction is such a modular art form. I mean, you're having to make decisions a year in advance, which you have no control over. I mean, that that decision is made. That set piece is designed. It's built. You know, there is restraint and constraint in that. I think it's always kind of a miracle to watch all of these kind of disparate pieces come together with such incredible time constraint. Is that a source of frustration for you, or do you do you find freedom in those in those limitations in a way? I mean, I think you know you and I have been doing this for so long that in a way, uh, you're used to the system. The system dictates the opening night dictates the kind of rhythm of things um, emerging. But if you just look at it on paper, it's qu it's quite a stressful endeavor. Well, on the very first day, I'm the only one that knows everything about what it's going to be. I know every prop. I know every piece of furniture how it's painted, how it's sourced, what size it is, um, all the costumes, you know, because I've, I've poured over everything. And the rehearsal process and the design process and working with the workshops and all of the staff is just a matter of me handing off that information and planting seeds so that it can then further blossom from what it is. Sometimes I get a bit frustrated in rehearsals because I can see, in German you say the Kopfkino, the, the, the vision, the film in your head, you can see right away and you're like, why can't everybody see exactly what I'm doing in the room simultaneously? And oftentimes, instead of just trying to get the big vision across, what you realize is it's a sum total of lots of tiny, tiny, tiny details. I was directing an opera last summer and there was a scene um, that was set in Georgia in mountains and the border between Georgia and Armenia. This is the demon. This is demon. Yes. Demon with no, um, no, the, and they were, they had to drink shots at a wedding and I had the chorus do it. And I knew what the costumes were going to look like. I spent a lot of time in Eastern Europe and I just thought everybody knows like how you would do a wedding shot in 15th century Armenia. And the chorus was all doing it, you know, 15 different ways. And then I just realized, okay, all I need to do this, this is a 32nd fix 
give a little bit of culture, talk about like little bits of pickle, talk about how you breathe, talk about the eye contact, talk about the angle of your shoulder, hand and wrist, talk about who's leading the thing. And you explain all that. And then all of a sudden, it looks exactly like what I have in my head. And it's just a matter of doing that thousands and thousands and thousands of times. Even last night, I just spoke to um, Guan Yu, who's playing uh, the role of Italia. And I said, listen, I see what you're doing on stage. And I've gone back through all these thousands of paintings that I have in reference. I found a painting that's really, really close to exactly the image that you're doing at the end of your first scene. Now you take a look at the painting. And then she said, oh, if I move my hip to the right and I do like this, I'll look exactly like that. And so it's this kind of back and forth in a dialogue. But if I had showed her that painting on the first day and said, I want you to look like that, I think it would have been quite constraining. And she would have thought, oh, the director just wants me to be the painting that he has in mind. But instead, I've, I've worked with her now for three weeks. I see how she does. And then I find something that already exists that supports almost what she's doing. And then we just sync them together. And I think that's what ends up looking like effective directing and design when it all comes together. Because I think that the singers aren't doing anything that they've been told to do. They're doing something that they've been inspired to do, and they're all working in the same aesthetic framework. Yeah, although that story makes you sound, I think, more dictatorial than you intend, which is that you've got some, you've got some grand design which is unable to be influenced by the individual contribution. Whereas I think before... You described a situation in which it was in which their contributions. You're, you're basically creating a, a wireframe upon which the individual singer can have contributions, and you end up in a in a dialogue, um, which is the process that I see you going through. It also gives them a comfort level because they are juggling a lot of things. They they have a lot of musical things. They have a, a lot of text with the recitative, and uh, vocally, none of this is easy to sing. And they're juggling lots of things and lots of people's opinions about it. So I try to give them also a kind of uh, a really comfortable roadmap that they can sink into and that they can spend all of their energy that they have to about the acting and the character, not figuring out where they're going or where they're standing or what the sort of stage composition is, um, but about the more nuanced things and free up some of their bandwidth uh, to fill that out. So we're nearing the end here, but tell me, tell me what it was that attracted um, you to take on the challenge of of this piece, what what about the piece was attractive, and maybe in the in the process of living with it for a year of your life, what you've grown to learn about the piece that maybe wasn't obvious um, uh, in your first contemplation of it. Well, something that absolutely wasn't obvious to me at the first contemplation and didn't come about until I sat down with Matty Ulrich and really talked through who the people are, not what the story is, and um, what I realized that the opera has a lot to do with Satyagraha. And I have a long relationship with that piece too. I have a production of it that's still running in Russia. It's won Golden Mask in Bolshoi. And it's it's incredibly deeply meaningful to the thousands of people that have seen it in Russia. And that's really touched me in a way that people connect with the idea of compassion and forgiveness. And so much of what we see in in television and film and literature is about revenge and about getting what you're due and about being right and about winning, you know, your, your side and not giving in and not compromising. And I think that through Martin Luther King and Gandhi and Satyagraha, the idea that through the truth force and through doing what's right to yourself, that you can move society forward. Um, maybe we think of those as, 
20th century ideas that have come about. But whether the real truth about Tito and how he lived his life or not is is irrelevant in, in the time, because it doesn't all match up in this historical fiction. But the idea that we want to believe that for, say, thousands of years, going back to classical antiquity, that we do have the power and the agency to react to people who have offended us, and who are against us and actually wish us harm, that we can reach out to them with compassion and forgiveness. He says, Tito, in his last line before the final ensemble, he says quite biblically, in a sense, I know you sort of connect together that the time period he was living in 79 AD is exactly the time that, you know, Christ was um, spreading his gospels. I not only forgive you, but it is absolutely forgotten what you have done. And I think that the freedom that you can see an example of somebody else that can unload that burden from themselves is something that I find incredibly powerful and reaches towards the kind of world that I would like to live in. Beautifully said. And I think that 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 moment of grace on stage is... Uh, one has a similar feeling in the theater that that one has in Akhenaten or Satyagraha, which is, I think, not those aren't connections that may seem obvious to to an opera goer. I want to thank you. I want to uh, prematurely congratulate you on a on a beautiful production, and um, thank you for coming back to the company. Thank you for the invitation. Yes. You've been listening to LA Opera's Behind the Curtain. Thanks, and see you at the opera. If you've enjoyed listening to L.A. Opera's Behind the Curtain, you'll want to make sure you don't miss an episode. Please subscribe and leave a rating or review on iTunes, Google Play, or wherever you listen. Don't forget to share this with your friends on Twitter and Facebook, and we'll see you at the opera.